Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. This week, our three things are, one, the consumer has remained a source of economic strength throughout the pandemic, thanks to the strong hand of the federal government. Ahead of the jobs report, we take stock of the consumer's financial health. Two, the U.S. is in the midst of a productivity boom, something enhanced, ironically, by the pandemic. Will it last? Three, we really didn't need a dot plot to appreciate the divergent views coming out of the Fed regarding the threat of inflation. Our chief sovereign analyst thinks this might be orchestrated. It's an interesting perspective. All right, let's get started. As we wrap up the first half of 2021, we thought it made sense to take stock of the all-important U.S. consumer, the primary engine of the U.S. economy. This story has been full of largely positive surprise throughout the pandemic. Consumers have been beneficiaries of an array of the pandemic era's massive relief, be it directly in the form of transfer payments or loan forbearance, or indirectly through the federal government's hand in orchestrating best-in-a-generation financial conditions. Those efforts have been enormously successful in preserving the financial integrity of most employers and driving up the values of the household sector's two largest assets, the home and investment portfolio. Sentiment has also been buoyed by a successful vaccine rollout, which has given many the confidence to return to something resembling normal. But this is not a universally upbeat story, as there are sobering elements that investors need to take into consideration. Chief among them is worrisome sediment that reflects some concern about what the post-COVID world looks like. The fading away of stimulus, concerns over job demands and security, rising prices, the prospects for an increased tax burden, and vulnerability to corrections in those aforementioned asset markets are what awaits in what we call the great deceleration, the period covering the next two years when economic growth slides from 7% or roughly four times the Fed's long-term average assumption in 2021, to 2.3% in 2023. Starting with income, the U.S. consumer is facing an adjustment as stimulus fades. Real personal disposable income in May was down 2.3% year over year. The personal savings rate, topped off by fresh stimulus in March, is down from that month's 27.6%, to a still high 12.4%, but without much hope of supersized stimulus in the future, this is likely to return to pre-pandemic levels around 7.5% in the back half of the year. While that rundown is still likely to fuel elevated spending over the back half of the year, we note that real spending fell 0.4% in May as consumers began to shift spend toward travel and leisure and services and away from durable goods. Spending and sentiment have been boosted throughout the pandemic by accelerated growth in home values and investment portfolios, which have driven household net worth some 16% higher through March 31st. Both asset classes are feeling quite toppy at the moment, with stretched valuations on the investment side and reduced affordability on the residential real estate side. The wealth effect of that move is not likely to reverse materially over the near term, but we would not expect to see similar gains as stimulus runs off and economic growth decelerates. That figures to reduce somewhat the impulse to spend. 
So if we add it all up, we come away marveling at how the consumer sector in the aggregate held up throughout the pandemic, but mindful of what the return to normal means. As our favorite consumer sage, Rich Fairbank, CEO of Capital One, observes, quote, don't get faked out by what you just saw, unquote, when it comes to thinking ahead about the health of the U.S. consumer. All right, on to our second thing, productivity's impact on job growth. And we tend to focus a lot on the effects of fiscal and monetary policy responses to the pandemic. There's no question that going big was a brilliant and courageous move. But we've also taken note of humankind's ingenuity, its ability to adapt to the challenges of economic lockdown. Creative workarounds, often tech-enabled, were a big part of the story, and the effects are likely to be, in many cases, lasting. We now know the pandemic pulled forward not just all sorts of technological development, but also a rethink about how we work, how we shop, and how we live. This, in turn, catalyzed management to prioritize even more tech-related spend. Deploying automation and artificial intelligence and adopting more flexible working arrangements is freeing up workers from manual or repetitive tasks and costly work protocols so that they can do more with less and focus on higher value-add projects. The result is a productivity boom. Economic output per hour worked has risen in three of the past four quarters, and the most recent quarter that we have data for, the first quarter, grew at 4.1%, the highest rate since 2009. Goldman Sachs estimates that three channels of tech disruption, the shift to e-commerce, digitization of the workplace, and the reallocation of human and investment capital from struggling and failing businesses will lift U.S. productivity by as much as 7% by 2022. But here's the catch. Economically, this can be a double-edged sword. Yes, higher productivity means fewer headcount needed to achieve the same amount of production. In other words, tech can be a job killer and a significant contributor to the skills mismatch that has gotten so much attention lately. Now, maximizing economic output requires a commitment from both the private and public sectors. A December 2020 McKinsey Global Economic Conditions Survey of corporate executives in North America and Europe found that 51% of responders had increased investment in technology during 2020. An enlightened public policy response of training and retraining individuals for the skills required to participate fully in this transition and creating incentives for investment are necessary parts of getting on the right side of that sword, something investors have every right to be skeptical of. McKinsey puts the stakes of getting this right in the following way, and I quote, the risk is rising inequality and unemployment, undermining demand just when it is needed most and putting the productivity dividend in doubt, unquote. Now, we've spoken quite a bit on the podcast about the economically destructive force of the zombie companies, something that has proliferated over the past decade in the U.S. Allowing that creative destruction to take place, at least to a greater degree than has been the case, would result in a more lasting productivity boom as strong firms have the resources and the vision to make those difference-making investments. More realistically, we believe some companies will be in a position to make those investments and some of the government response will be helpful. You can't always get what you want. All right, on to our third thing, the Fed's messaging. The markets, be it credit or equities or rates, 
seems at times to be singularly focused on what the Fed is doing. And that's because the central bank has been so front and center, providing monetary support throughout the pandemic and through to the reopening. Because the Fed and Congress have gone big, investors now cite inflation as their number one risk. So the Fed has to balance in actions and words monetary accommodation with risks of overheating the economy. No small task. And it has to do this while pulling the proverbial punch bowl gradually away from the party. It has to engineer a soft landing from extraordinary stimulus-fueled growth. As you might expect, given the magnitude of support and the uncertainty that still surrounds the pandemic, there is a range of opinions within the FOMC on what to do and when to do it. To get important perspective on this, I am joined today by Joan Feldbaum-Vidra, KBRA's Chief Sovereign Analyst. Hi, Joan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Van. Joan, we were talking last week about the variety of opinions coming out of Fed officials, and you were quick to point out this might not be a herding of the cats issue, but it actually might be orchestrated. That's right, Van. It signals to the market that they are awake at the switch. This reminds me some of the euro area debt crisis communication dynamics. Back then, like now, the Hawks played an important role in the debate and in the communication. Back at the time of the euro area debt crisis, it was Jens Weidmann of the Bundesbank who would provide those very hawkish views about the ECB's role in guiding the periphery countries out of the debt crisis. It all may indeed be choreographed. And bringing this back to the present day, presenting alternative views accomplishes several things. First, it shines light on the complexity of the situation. Second, it indicates to the market that the Fed is not guilty of groupthink. And third, it shows the world that the Fed isn't colorblind to the current realities. Ah, interesting perspective. So a method to the madness. Yes, this Fed intends to be super transparent. Lots of communication, not just from the chair, but also from individual members. Seemingly telegraphing everything to condition the market in order to avoid unexpected shocks that could undermine the recovery. That's great perspective, Joan. Now, before we go, let's take advantage of your worldview around this topic. What are you watching globally that could influence the Fed's thinking as it continues to form its forward guidance? Haha, <laughs> what are we not watching globally? That's a much shorter list. Well, you know, the durability of the recovery is the first matter of concern, of course. After this rebound, we need to sustain the momentum in a way that preserves efficiencies, profitability, and competitiveness. Hence, wages and cost of inputs are key to watch. We're all hopeful that the technological breakthrough that occurred with the vaccine discoveries will enable scientists to keep pace with variants as vaccines continue to be refined. We and the Fed are also closely monitoring the large economic engines of the world. China and Europe are on a path to recovery. Japan too, both Japan and Europe more slowly than China, as we know. Related to my first point about the sustainability of growth, For sure, the Fed is closely monitoring commodity prices and trying to understand supply bottlenecks in its estimation of future inflationary pressures. And finally, I'm sure the Fed is also watching, as are we, watching closely developments in Washington for the extent of inflationary impulses to come. Thanks for that, Joan. That is a timely reminder that the powerful but fragile economic recovery that the Fed is helping to engineer in the U.S. profoundly impacts the rest of the world. There clearly is a lot at stake, and that global context is a valuable one to have. So there you have it. 
three things in credit. One, the consumer is well positioned to help engineer a soft landing in the great deceleration. Two, the U.S. is in the midst of a productivity boom, something enhanced ironically by the pandemic, but we are skeptical that it can last. And three, the wide array of commentary coming out of the Fed regarding the risk of inflation might just well be part of its messaging to reduce the risk of a policy surprise that could undermine the recovery. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. Enjoy the holiday and see you next week.